Hey there, welcome to the As It Is In Heaven podcast, companion to our sermon series as we explore Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In this series of conversations, we dive into aspects of Jesus' teaching which require a deeper look. In this episode, we come to the subject of worry and anxiety. It's become almost commonplace to say that between a global pandemic, the reality of ongoing racial injustice, economic uncertainty, and a fractious political landscape, we live in anxious times. And if you find yourself struggling with anxiety, you are far from alone. A staggering number of Americans fight anxiety and depression. In 2010, for example, well before COVID-19 was even on our radars, more than 253 million prescriptions were written for anti-anxiety and antidepressants in the United States alone. And that number has increased as much as 34% since the beginning of the pandemic. Proverbs 12.25 tells us, Anxiety weighs down the heart, and followers of Jesus are not immune from this. After he talks about chasing the godlike power of money, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Do not worry about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? But these are exactly the kinds of things that we worry about. To better understand Jesus' teaching, I continue my conversation with Dr. Jeff Ashby, a longtime member of All Souls and who, in addition to being a licensed psychologist, serves as the professor of counseling psychology at Georgia State University. We talked about the increase of anxiety in our culture, what causes anxiety, and some practical habits that we can adopt to direct our minds and hearts toward the kingdom. So obviously I'm not an expert in the field, but I seems like there is no shortage of articles that I've come across recently that talks about how we are becoming more anxious as a culture, about how stress levels are rising. And so we hear Jesus saying, do not worry. And again, I think there's a sense in which we can hear this and feel a bit of, oh, I should feel bad about the fact that I'm not supposed to worry. And now I'm worried about the fact that I don't have enough faith. And it just goes in this whole cycle. How do we deal with worry? Is there any credence to the thought that worry and anxiety is on the rise? The short answer is yes. <laughs> it's, it had been on the rise even prior to the pandemic. Yeah. You think about mental health in uh, the United States and worldwide. Um, and we actually have a small study, as many people do during this time, looking at the effects of COVID and COVID-related stress over and above other stressors, cumulative trauma, et cetera. And it's additive and significant with regard to people's well-being. And we've gathered data from seven different countries. So just one more piece of evidence. But I think the definition of terms can be helpful because I think we get muddy. One way to think about it is on a continuum from attention to concern (laughs) to then worry into anxiety. Because certainly you have a focused attention, you have a concern about something, right? And you move from a concern to a worry. And often, and then worry into anxiety, sometimes those are melded, depending upon which author you're reading with regard to psychology or how you're thinking about different diagnoses or those kinds of things. But concern is where productive action sort of ends. So I've got attention, I've got some concern about this, and then I have productive action. 
When I move from concern to worry and or anxiety, what I tend to have is a ruminative sort of processing, but without productive action. And it's often because the productive action has already been taken. Now, not for the college student who's worried, you know, about the exam because they didn't study enough. You know, that's a unique situation. But for most of us, when we think about real worry or anxiety. It's situations where really appropriate action's been taken. You've had some concern, and so you've had done an appropriate plan for the future, those kinds of things, try to be wise, et cetera. But you're still worried about your bank account, retirement. And so I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I mean, Jesus talks about that in the next chapter when he talks about do not store up for yourselves treasure on heaven. There's a, there's a disproportionate amount of concern or a disproportionate amount of attention that can go on to one of these things that maybe crosses the line from attention to concern to worry. How do you know when you're crossing the line? One is productivity, just the idea of is there productive action that is linked to this? Are there things that I can do and act as a result? Um, have I done what I can do and I move around? So in the classic checking things in the house on the way out the door, right? It's, there's a sort of continuum. We think about this sort of normal behavior. Some of us are wound a little tight. Some of us are looser and easier going, et cetera. And so if you have a family member who feels the need to check everything on the way out the door, I think, you know, we're going to roll their eyes at that person, you know, where is, you know, where's mom, where's dad, where's whoever kind of thing. Oh, you know, she or he is checking one more time. Ah, well, come on, we're going to ready to go. We joke about that because it's on the range of the normal continuum, right? And that's because it's, we would say it's not excessive. It's behavior that, that speaks to the concern, but doesn't speak beyond the concern. And the problematic patterns are things like if I've checked once and I get interrupted, and I have to check again, or I have to check twice, or there's a ritual. And then you begin to problems you think, now we really are, it's a 35-minute process to get out the door and not just a checking. It's not just in the service of the concern, it's in service of the rumination, it's in service of the excessive amount of worry. And so really, like with a lot of what we think about in terms of mental health kinds of concerns or issues, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to be, to be down in the dumps. You know, it's perfectly reasonable to, um, I used to live in the Northeast and I would get depressed every February because everything is gray and it was going to stay gray for another six or eight weeks. If your significant other breaks up with you on Instagram, you have permission to be sad. You know, you found out when everybody else did that you're no longer partnered, that that's a bummer. You're, you're, you, everyone's going to give you full permission to. Sort of, but if they break up with you on Instagram, I mean, you got to kind of ask the question about whether or not they were quality to begin with, that's right? That's a reasonable response, yeah. Uh, but I work with young people, and so there's going to be some, yeah, consternation about that. And so if they don't want to, back when we could, go to book club or do whatever, stay in, binge Netflix, eat ice cream, et cetera, you're at a certain amount of, yeah, there's an ebb and flow in mood. And that's within the sort of range of what we think about as normal versus excessive. And part of it is, am I no longer in, able to engage in constructive sort of kinds of behaviors? The same thing is true in terms of anxiety and worry. I'm a nervous traveler. So back when we were traveling, I like to be there on time. I've never missed a flight that wasn't a misconnection. And I had traveled fairly often and had an adequate status and those kinds of things. I'm just more comfortable if I can get there and get my cup of co good cup of coffee before I get on the airplane, as it were, and I build that time in. There are other folks who've missed various flights at various times. Now, this is sort of on that range of, I think about it myself as an anxious traveler, right? But I'm able to travel, okay? I'm not getting there the day before, et cetera. So part of the difficulty is to sort of cut a line and say, you know, here's the point where you're more healthy or less healthy. 
Paul Meal famously calls that sort of cutting nature at its joints. I think when it being, becomes less productive for us is when we realize it's keeping us from other activities, engagement, or productivity. So when you talk about being an anxious traveler, mm -hmm. there are certain things that you do, though, right, in right. order to make sure that you're getting there on time. Mm -hmm. You're not sitting in a room fretting about how you're going to miss your flight, but then don't accompany that with the sort of productive action that you were talking about. And that kind of is one way of thinking about whether you're crossing the line from disproportionate amount of worry to if there's not something you can do about it. Right. And so you think about that. Most of us in the sort of heaven, in the popular sort of consciousness, a sense of sort of a range of healthy. So my silly example of somebody, you know, breaking up with you on Instagram, you get to be sad, but you don't get to be suicidal. I think that's, yeah, that's outside that range. So when we think about anxiety or worry, they're closely related to stress because it's one of the, it's one of the pretty unique mental states where we can measure it physiologically. At some point, because worry and anxiety get sort of melded in a sense, I really, there is a kind of tenseness, and we can measure everything from muscle tension to heart rate variability to blood pressure, et cetera. Lots of people know about stress now and the various stress hormones or those kinds of things. But, you know, we get people in the lab and we have them think thoughts and we can measure their physiological arousal. So when Jesus talks about do not worry, he kind of links it to some very particular things. And he's talking about kind of material provision, just looking, looking over the list. Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the birds of the air. You know, why do you worry about food? You know, they, your father provides for them. So there is a sense in which some of the things that he is specifically addressing here are tied to material need. And the answer that he gives is trust in the father's provision that, you know, God knows. And, and I think it's not, you know, kind of this, I, I think sometimes when we hear the passage about the birds of the air, we think it's, you know, sentimental, like, oh, look at how free they are and I mean, birds were food, too. Like, they, they were sacrificed as well in, in the temple, so it's not quite as sentimental. And, and even with the flowers of the field, you know, nobody likes to read that part where it's like, and then, you know, the next day they flourish, and the next day they're thrown into the fire. So in tying things to those material provisions, what are some of the narratives that we tend to fall into that cause us to have that disproportionate amount of, of worry, to cross that line from concern. Because, right, I don't think Jesus would say, you know, don't be concerned about eating. He's not dismissing the, the needs of the body. Mm -hmm. He's acknowledging that there's a time and a place and that God knows those needs. So what are some of those narratives that kind of cause us, lead us down the path toward worry? Well, when you talk about the example of clothes, other material kinds of possessions, et cetera, that typically, you know, above a certain level, you know, what, 10% above the poverty level, et cetera, the primary issue has to do with comparison. And so when you ask people, basically, how are you doing, they tend to reference the people around them. And there's great research about sort of that, you know, I'm doing quite well or not so well, not an absolute standard, but based on sort of my comparison group. Keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to keep up with it is because it's a way of, again, the popular consciousness of keeping score. The idea that I'm going to have an adequate self-esteem, that I matter, that I count, that I'm important, that I have value, that I have worth, etc. I can tell because I drive this, have this, etc. And I'm a little concerned about being behind. So some of this anxiety or worry is in the service of self-esteem. 
preservation of self-esteem, et cetera, and what are the sources of that sense of self-concept. So that would be one source, I think, that has to speak to these very kinds of issues, which would go obviously right back to, from a Christian perspective, you know, what's the sense of your efficacy in the world? You know, yeah. it's a child of God, forgiven, et cetera. And am I finding my space there and or am I adding to it by saying yes and it's also what I drive, et cetera? Or is it really placed in those other places? There was a landmark study on subjective well-being a few years ago out of Princeton University in which Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, and Angus Deaton, a celebrated economist, spent months analyzing data from 450,000 Gallup surveys to see what, if any, factors might increase one's overall well-being. And what they found was that there was an income threshold by which subjective well-being would, in fact, increase. But only to a point. And after that point, you either plateau or even decline. Here's what Deaton wrote, quote, No matter where you live, your emotional well-being is as good as it's going to get at $75,000. And money's not going to make it any better beyond that point. It's like you hit some sort of ceiling and you can't get emotional well-being much higher just by having more, end quote. You remember John D. Rockefeller saying all he needed to find happiness was just a little bit more? Nope. Drill down, and the lie is that we won't be happy unless we are able to keep up with the Joneses. But in reality, we want to beat the Joneses. And once we beat them, we'll just find new Joneses. Here's a random fact for you. There are more storage units in the United States than there are McDonald's restaurants. Just let that sink in. Turns out all that striving does not make us any happier. Richard Easterlin was a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was the first to study happiness data. He developed what has come to be known as the Easterlin Paradox, which states that at a certain point in time, happiness varies directly with income both among and within nations. But over time, happiness does not trend up as income continues to grow. That's the nature of the paradox. Higher income provides this initial boost to one's subjective well-being, but with more money, it doesn't make people any happier. From 1946 to 2014, the trend in the United States' happiness has been either flat or slightly negative. During that same seven-decade stretch, real incomes have more than tripled. To quote another notorious economist, it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. One way that Jesus directs us from the comparison game is by directing our hearts and minds toward the kingdom. 
When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, he is saying that the only way to escape disordered desire is to have at the center of our lives the aims and goals of the kingdom. This is the place where goodness and mercy will follow after us all the days of our lives. From that place, all of our loves will find their proper order. And when Jesus says, and all of these things will be added to you, he's not saying that you're going to get everything you want. But he is reminding his hearers, who, again, were mostly poor and oppressed, that they live under the watchful care of a father whose eye is on the sparrow and who is faithful to provide everything you need. The conventional wisdom on how to keep from anxiety is to acquire more, to gain something external. But Jesus tells us there's another way to go, and that is to desire less. And so if you add this, this sort of the need for those kinds of external measures and then two important components that lead to stress and or can undermine is a lack of predictability and a lack of control. And particularly salient during our times at the moment. But we know that if you feel, if you can't predict that your stress level rises, you tend to worry. There's a kind of comfort in the predictability, right? Classic psychology experiments where you, you, know, you put the rat in the cage and you deliver an electric shock to the rat. Big surprise, rat gets stressed. <laughs> but if you deliver that shock every 45 seconds, and a ritualistic kind of thing, the rat will, in fact, have stress levels that decrease. Mm. Because even though they're receiving, in these comparisons, um, so, and I'm, I'm not shocking these rats, I want to be clear about this, <laughs> not my research. Um, but the oh, idea I'm going to edit that part yeah. out. Everybody's going to think that's what <laughs> Great, you do. That's what there. I do. That the same number of shocks per 10 minutes, et cetera, are delivered to the rats. So it isn't the dosage, it's the frequency with regard to its predictability. Mm. Um, and... In the same way, if you put the rat in the cage and you have a, and you're shocking that rat every 45 seconds, sort of at those intervals, if there's a lever in the cage that if the rat hits the lever, it delivers a shock. But then at the next 45 second interval, there's no shock delivered. What that rat will do is pretty quickly begin to, at the roughly 40 second interval before the shock was going to be administered, will hit the level and administer it themselves. And the stress level of the rat will come down. So even an, ad, even an aversive stimuli, just having some control over it, decreases your stress level and your worry. And you know this if you've ever taught anybody to drive and pushed the imaginary brake on the passenger side <laughs> because there's that sense of out of control. Or if you've ridden in the passenger seat with a spouse that drives way too fast. Not that that's my story. I have no comment about that. <laughs> and so the you idea, you've been married yeah. longer than I am. You're a smarter man than I am. So when you think about, you know, if it's all the more important to be seeking these other things, external things, for myself, self-esteem, self-concept, to realize I'm not behind, to feel like I matter or count in the world, false gods, and it's less predictable how I can get them, I have less control over it, whether it's stock market, etc. that's going to increase stress or worry. So I was listening to a podcast not too long ago with a guy named Mark Sayers, who described that our culture lives with uh, what he calls this kind of low-grade ambient anxiety. I mean, it's just kind of all around. There's this degree of 
unease, this degree of tension that clouds every social interaction we have. And kind of stems from a lot of the fact that a lot of our social institutions, uh, things that we place our faith in, have been undermined. And you mentioned it before, but add to that a global pandemic in which if we were already on the rise before COVID with stress and anxiety and worry, now we add to that a very real sense in which we feel powerless to control a virus. What What are your thoughts about what we might be experiencing in terms of uh, just as a culture when it comes to worry and anxiety? Well, it does speak to the issue, those issues of predictability and some things you thought were stable that aren't stable any longer. And that stability, whether, they're, whether it's actual or perceived, decreases your stress level. That's one of the things we know is that it is perceived control, not necessarily control. So give someone the perception of control, it'll reduce their stress level. All kinds of old industrial organizational psychology experiments where they would do things like speed up the assembly line too fast to stress out the workers and people who like vintage TV or thinking about a particular I Love Lucy episode. Anyway, same idea. Wait, wait, wait. This, this is too good. If you're under a certain age, you know exactly what Jeff is talking about. You know the scene. Lucy, Ethel, conveyor belt, chocolate factory. It's a classic. See if this audio brings back some memories. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. The conveyor belt just keeps getting faster and faster. I mean, Lucy was a genius. If you haven't seen that scene, look it up on YouTube. Well worth your time. Back to Jeff. And, they're, uh, and then they put Turn in a big way. red button and they say, hey, we feel your pain. Um, but for economic reasons, we got to keep things speeding along at this kind of thing. But if you just can't handle it, if the stress gets too high, push the big red button, that will stop the line. We can recalibrate, et cetera. Now, there's some economic ramifications. But really, if you, if you need to do it, you can. They put in the big red button brief the, the group, they in fact start that assembly line at the previous accelerated pace and the stress level of the workers drops. And you could guess how many times they hit the big red button. They never did. Yeah. And the good, the good thing is uh, it didn't do anything. <laughs> it's just perceived control. So you'll see that in lots of places. And, and when you th- a pandemic undermines our perspective of perceived control. You may have seen, there's a sort of going around in our circles, uh, the old um, C.S. Lewis essay, Learning in Wartime. Yeah. Yeah, where he says, right, famously, war creates no absolutely new situation. And as people suggested, you can substitute pandemic, right? No new situation. It simply aggravates the permanent human situation that we can no longer ignore. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. And we're mistaken. When we compare war with, quotes, normal life, life has never been normal. And I think there is a kind of existential confrontation with that, that um, we have a lot of cultural and structural denial about. 
And so to say that we're on a precipice, as you always are, right? And that's unnerving, anxious making, etc. And so we're in a unique situation where we're the healthiest we've ever been physically, right? More resourced than we've ever been in a society, and yet also more stressed, which is a fascinating sort of paradox. Yeah. I mean, how do you as a person of faith kind of wrap your head around that? I think there's a, there's a shift to the center in the sense of things that used to be trustworthy that were beyond the sort of traditional things, where it's social structure, et cetera, the idea that we have a general sense of morality, of truth, of goal, et cetera, that that shift in center has left us unnerved. And I don't know that it's problematic at one level. I mean, I think we might argue all it does is reveal a crisis that's always been there, but we had a veneer over it. Um, so I think we might acknowledge, you know, these are the right questions, but we were able to hold them at arm's distance. You know, what's it all about? You know, what's the future hold? What's the real purpose in these kinds of things, et cetera, are the core questions. But if I'm busily moving about my day, then there is a kind of, you know, um, compulsive, neurotic denial that holds those demons just far enough away to hate me stay on the treadmill. We've talked about how people recognize their anxiety and worry, but what are some practical things that can actually help people reduce the level of anxiety that they feel? So in addition to recognizing it, how can people then begin to employ some practices that would condition them in a different way? So I would say first that um, in all these examples where I'm sort of being flip with regard to depression and those kinds of things, I want to acknowledge that, you know, if if your anxiety or if your worry is keeping you from social interactions is keeping you from occupational, is keeping you, is, is undermining your work in significant ways, etc. that I would encourage you to, to seek professional help. Anxiety disorders are highly prevalent in our society. And so there's, there's really everywhere in our families and other places. And so um, I want to acknowledge, and I think one of the core things we can do as a church is acknowledge that and try to fight the sort of natural stigma as if somehow that were a weakness of character or fortitude or any other thing like that. Because everyone, listening, everyone everywhere, either has these kinds of issues or knows people firsthand, familiar, etc. So I would want to say that at the outset. Yeah, and I think it's important to say that when Jesus says, do not worry, sometimes people hear that connection of do not worry and you have little faith, and they correspond their clinical anxiety with a lack of faith. And that can be a quite damaging storyline to believe. And that's not really what Jesus is talking about at all. He's not talking about mental illness. He's talking about the disproportionate amount of concern that we we give to somewhat ordinary things. And describing these as disorders, I think, helps with the idea of how prevalent they are, that they are really sound, empirically supported treatments. So to, to to make sure that people aren't struggling in isolation with this feeling, I, I ought to, yeah engage in more spiritual disciplines in order to have these psychological symptoms abate is not a formula. With that said, you know, one of the things we know about human beings is we also have an internal dialogue, a kind of internal dialogue running. We're always telling ourselves stuff about ourselves, others in the world. And part of what you do, I think, to decrease worry is shift that internal dialogue. Yeah. Um, so it's shifting it in terms of making it more, more sensical, right, more logical, more sort of rational in the world. And then also to think, well, um, it's, it comes back to the, your series on spiritual disciplines, the idea of, when I think about meditation, I think about silence, you think about prayer, 
um, to realize that, you know, these worries are responses. I'm worried about my children. I have been, I will be, I think it's just sort of terminal. Yeah. And I'm working to be a parent is to worry. (laughs) And I'm working to have the, I'm working at having those worries beyond the point of concern. There's nothing else to do necessarily. They need to do what they're going to do next, et cetera. My spiritual edge is to have those concerns and worries prompt me to pray and to remind myself of God's promises for my children and to pray God's promises for my children. So part of what I'm going to do is I want to replace that internal dialogue that's either misaligned with reality or misaligned with what I know to be true from the scripture. It's the, you know, it's the classic, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so to work toward having eyes of faith so that I'm not focused on the seas around and the unpredictability and the control, which has always been the case at one level, we just had a veneer over it and sort of moved to those things. Also remember that anxiety or worry is an autonomic response of your physiological system. So they're straightforward and simple kinds of things that you do like deep breathing. And uh, it should probably get a collective roll of the eyes when I say it. And yet, it's one of the classic things you can do. Simply inhaling deeply um, and then exhaling slightly slower than your inhalation. Because the fancy part is that you activate the parasympathetic nervous system when you inhale and you activate the parasympathetic when you... Sympathetic when, sympathetic when you inhale and parasympathetic when you exhale. And That's the, what I was going to say. And the sympathetic parasympathetic uh, system is, a, is the activation system. That what moves you toward activation. And parasympathetic is relaxing. And so you're going to basically engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to calm down all kinds of things and help you flush the stress hormones out of your system and those kinds of things. The, one of the difficulties about the pandemic is one of the ways that we do reduce stress, et cetera. And one of the ways that we, ways we come together and remind each other of what's true to internal dialogue is community. And our community is strained. We know that in terms of resilience, one of the most powerful forces is, is social support. And we're strained because we can't gather yeah. in person, face-to-face, et cetera. And so just to take care, as people have said, that in a time of social distancing, that you want to be physically distancing. But you want to be you want to be you don't want to be psychologically distancing. Yeah. You want to be as engaged as ever or more so because many of us need more contact because it isn't physical or face to face. Yeah. In some ways, that term social distancing is unfortunate because it's not about being socially isolated from people. It is really about being six feet apart, mm-hmm. physically distant from one another, but not socially yeah. All the classic so in a things community you, group. There we go. All the classic things you need to do healthy are all the more important. Aerobic exercise, being outdoors. One of the things that we sometimes undermine, or we don't we don't mention is the notion of self-compassion. And you hinted at it with the idea that I'm worried and I shouldn't be worried, now I'm worried about the fact that I'm worried and I'm not, etc. It's just that acknowledgement that you know, you're going to do things imperfectly. Um, I'm not talking about a sense of omission or commission, but just the idea that you were going to try to exercise or you were going to, you know, do a yoga session today and you didn't, et cetera. So to, to give yourself a little bit of room to do that and give and it's some self-compassion, because what happens then is you get into a cycle then where you're undermining your own well-being. If you focus too much on sort of missing that opportunity or not engaging in what you hope would be habitual starting, or you actually decrease the likelihood that you will do it. So often we talk about with regards to just sort of a general wellness because there's such a mind-body connection with anxiety, worry, and the physical. Um, often talk about the critical inch. 
you know, what you need is not sort of when you think about doing this, um, many of us, because we're high achievers or those kinds of things, you know, if I mention like aerobic exercise, there are folks who think, oh, yeah, the Ironman, that's what I'll do. That's, you know, it's a, oh, what is it, two-mile open water swim, it's 112 miles on the bike, and then I'll run the marathon. You know, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Um, but instead, we're just talking about the critical inch. And for me, the silly metaphor is I was, you know, I was traveling and I was driving someplace instead of getting an airplane. So I had a, a, a coat and tie because I was trying to be impressive. And I stopped a quick trip for gas and I was getting some coffee because I like quick trip coffee and it's inexpensive. So I walking back in my tie and these guys had a panel van and they were trying, it was obviously stalled. I mean, they couldn't get it going. And um, it wasn't really in my way, but I thought, well, it could be helpful. I don't have a big skill set, but pushing, like that's the sweet spot. So I put the coffee on my car and tucked in my tie so it was away. And I leaned in with them and I helped them push that van one inch. Because as soon as we pushed it one inch, it was moving. And pushing a moving van is not hard. But getting it from dead stop to moving is the hard part. So when we think about these sort of cycles of wellness, a way to think about it is what's your critical inch? What's the thing you could just start doing? Or one simple thing you could stop doing? The idea that, you know, we can, if you can walk, if you're mobile, you can walk. If you move, your body will crave fuel. If you feed your body fuel, you're more likely to move. If you move, you're more likely to sleep better. And less likely to fall prey as I do to between two and four in the morning, as I've been doing, lying awake, well, worrying. Hmm. And can I use those times to remind me I have an internal dialogue and I try to replace it not just with other positive thoughts or reality, but some of that, but also then with, you know, words that will lead me to a faithful perspective. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul closes out from a prison cell in Rome with these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul isn't saying don't be anxious because there aren't threatening things in the world around us. No, he's saying it precisely because there are. But all of those things find their place in a larger story. A story of the one who stands like a sentinel over our hearts and minds. So in a world that is filled with worry, that fills us with worry, thinking about all that is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and admirable, it will draw your heart, the center and source of your inner life, toward the center and source of all life, which is Jesus and the kingdom he has come to bring. It's about training 
your heart and your mind, not to find its center on the comparison game or on the things that you can't control, but instead to train your eyes on the things that matter and to direct the compass of your heart toward the things that bring life. Huge thanks to Jeff Ashby for sitting down with me again and to Casey Johnson for making sure that all of our audio sounds as good as it possibly can. That's all for this episode. Grace and peace to you.